Thanks for listening to Great Battles in History. If you have any questions or comments, I'd love to hear from you. You can write me, Daryl D., at greatbattleshistory at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at The Great Battles. I hope you enjoy the podcast. For all of its importance and fame, Agincourt was just one battle in the long succession of conflicts fought between the two most powerful and most advanced kingdoms of medieval Europe, England and France, from 1337 to 1453. Only in the 19th century did French historians dub these conflicts collectively La Guerre de Cent Ans. English historians soon translated this into the Hundred Years' War. The fundamental cause of enmity between the two kingdoms was the English king's possession of vast lands in France. The origins of these lands went back to 1066, when William, Duke of Normandy, won the Battle of Hastings and conquered Anglo-Saxon England, thus creating a realm that spanned the Channel. During the 12th century, under the first Plantagenet kings, the English possessions in France reached their maximum extent. They included Normandy, Maine, Anjou, Touraine, Poitou, and Aquitaine. Together, these territories made up roughly half of France and dwarfed the Ile de France, the region around Paris that was the principal domain of the French kings. But the English kings did not possess these lands in France by their own sovereign right. They held them as fiefs from the French kings. During the 13th century, the French kings exploited their feudal overlordship to roll back the English dominions. In 1202, King Philip II Augustus, whom we met in the Hattin episode briefly taking part in the Third Crusade, declared that he was confiscating the French fiefs of King John of England, the ineffectual brother and successor of Richard the Lionheart. In 1204 and 1205, French armies conquered Normandy and Anjou. John was unable to recover these lands, nor could his heir, Henry III. By 1259, England only held the Duchy of Aquitaine, which comprised the cities of Bordeaux and Bayonne with their extensive hinterlands in southwestern France. Henry III then signed the Treaty of Paris with King Louis IX of France. The key clause of this treaty confirmed the vassal status of the English kings and required them to pay homage to the French kings for their lands in Aquitaine. The clause read, And for what he shall give us and our heirs, we and our heirs will do him and his heirs, kings of France, liege homage for Bordeaux, Bayonne, and for Gascony, and for all the lands that we hold beyond the English Channel, and we will hold of him as a peer of France and as Duke of Aquitaine. Henry III personally set a precedent by kneeling before Louis IX in the gardens of the royal palace on the Ile de la Cité in Paris. Far from ensuring a lasting settlement to the problem of English lands in France, the Treaty of Paris planted the seeds for chronic conflict. The French kings were determined to exercise full feudal authority over the Duchy of Aquitaine. Their goal was to weaken English rule so much that they would eventually be able to annex the duchy. At every change of monarch on either side of the channel, the French rulers demanded homage from their English vassals. The ceremony was performed in 1273, 1285, 1303, 1325, and 1328. Even worse, French royal courts claimed expansive jurisdiction within Aquitaine. 
these courts could even summon the King of England to appear in person before them in Paris. For the English kings, this situation, in which they were sovereign rulers in their own island kingdom, yet vassals in their continental domains, quickly became intolerable. Their goal became to exercise full sovereignty in Aquitaine. The attempts by the French kings to impose their authority as overlords of Aquitaine and the English king's efforts to resist them led directly to two wars in 1294-1298 and 1324-1327. Although the French made some conquests, neither war brought any significant or lasting changes to the status of the duchy. Nevertheless, the First War is particularly noteworthy because it presaged the Hundred Years' War in several crucial respects. The defense of Aquitaine against French attacks was largely left to its own inhabitants, particularly the numerous and warlike nobility of Gascony. King Edward I of England and the English army campaigned in Flanders. This region was closer to Paris. Even more importantly, the English found many allies there among disgruntled vassals of the French king. Finally, the War of 1294-1298 revealed that any conflict between England and France would be fought on a grand scale, requiring unprecedented mobilization of manpower and financial resources. In 1297, Edward I, faced by the spiraling costs of the war, was forced to reissue Magna Carta and to confirm Parliament's power to approve taxation, a major turning point in English history. In 1328, a second issue exploded that further damaged relations between England and France. The French king Charles IV died without an heir. His death brought an end to the Capetian dynasty, which had ruled France since 987. The king of England, Edward III, who was then just a youth of 15, had a strong blood claim to the French throne. Through his mother, the French princess Isabella, he was Charles IV's nephew but a conclave of the French nobility determined that Edward's claim was invalid. The laws of royal succession in France barred women from taking the throne and ruling. The French nobles argued that the prohibition on female succession meant that Isabella had no rights to pass on to Edward. Instead, the nobles chose one of their own as King of France, Philip Count of Valois. Philip was only the cousin of Charles IV, he was chosen not for reasons of blood right, but on grounds of suitability. He was 35 years old and already an experienced statesman and soldier. Equally importantly, he had lived all of his life in France. On May the 28th, 1328, Philip of Valois was crowned as Philip VI at Reims, the traditional coronation site of the French kings. He founded the Valois dynasty, which would last until 1589. However, Edward III and his successors would not abandon their claim to the throne of France. They asserted that Philip of Valois and his descendants were usurpers. As if the feudal conflict over Aquitaine and the disputed succession to the French throne were not bad enough, a third issue was pushing the kingdoms of France and England to come to blows, war in Scotland. Since at least 1291, the English kings had claimed to be feudal overlords of the Scottish kings. The Scots, however, resisted fiercely and tenaciously. Fans of the Mel Gibson epic Braveheart, and here's your chance to yell, Freedom, know this to be the age of William Wallace and Robert Bruce. In their struggle against the English, 
the Scots found an able, willing, and loyal friend in the French. In 1295, the kingdoms of Scotland and France forged the famous Old Alliance, promising each other military aid against the mutual English enemy. With Robert Bruce's great victory over King Edward II of England at Bannockburn in 1314, Scotland had succeeded in securing its independence. As soon as he became king in 1327, Edward III was determined to reassert English overlordship. But Edward's first invasion of Scotland was a failure, and he was forced to make what came to be called the Shameful Peace with Robert Bruce, in which he promised that the realm of Scotland shall remain forever to the eminent prince Lord Robert, by the grace of God, illustrious King of Scots, our ally and dearest friend, and to his heirs and successors, divided in all things from the realm of England, entire, free, and quit, and without any subjection, servitude, claim, or demand. Soon enough, though, Edward was handed another opportunity to intervene in Scotland, and this time to much greater effect. Robert Bruce died in 1329, leaving as his heir his five-year-old son, who became King David II. Child King succession was disputed by Edward Balliol, whose father had been King of Scotland in 1291. With tacit support from Edward III, Balliol invaded Scotland from England in 1332 and won a victory at Dublin Moor. This success encouraged Edward to invade himself with his army in 1333. For the next three years, the King of England would campaign personally in Scotland. While Edward III was embroiled in Scotland, Philip VI of France was taking a series of aggressively provocative actions against him. Anne Curry, one of the most eminent historians of both the Hundred Years' War and the Battle of Agincourt, concludes that there is no real doubt that it was Philip who started the war with England. Even though he was King of France with the support of much of the French nobility, Philip felt that he had to neutralize Edward III's blood claim in order to feel fully secure on his throne. Furthermore, he was determined to continue the long-standing French policy of imposing feudal overlordship over the Duchy of Aquitaine. He combined both of these goals in 1329 when he threatened to invade Aquitaine with an army of 5,000 men-at-arms and 16,000 infantry. Newly on his throne and with his forces committed to Scotland, Edward felt that he could not face such a threat. He therefore rushed in person to France. At Amiens Cathedral, he paid homage to Philip. With this act, Edward both recognized that Philip was king and acknowledged that he was Philip's vassal in exchange for possession of Aquitaine. This was how a contemporary French text recorded the event. I become your man for the Duchy of Aquitaine and its appurtenances that I hold of you as Duke and Peer of France, according to the peace treaty made in the past. And then the hands of the King of England were put between those of the King of France, and the kiss was given by the King of France to the King of England. But Philip VI remained unsatisfied with this humiliation and subordination of his rival. In 1331, he threatened to confiscate Edward's revenues from Aquitaine, which forced the English king to renew his homage. Then, over the next five years, Philip exploited every opening to assert his feudal jurisdiction in the duchy. Furthermore, the French king meddled in Scotland. In 1326, he renewed the old alliance. 
following Edward's crushing defeat of the Scottish armies at the Battle of Halidon Hill in 1333, the boy King David II was forced to flee into exile. Philip gave him sanctuary at his court. The French king then declared that any settlement of the dispute over Aquitaine had to include Scotland as well. This announcement had the effect of tying Edward's hands in Scotland while making the problems of Aquitaine even harder to resolve. The final rush to war took place in 1336. Philip VI had long been planning to go on crusade. If he had been able to proceed, a great clash between England and France could have been avoided, but Pope Benedict XII informed him that he could not go as long as conflicts raged in Aquitaine and Scotland. As Jonathan Sumtian, author of a monumental narrative history of the Hundred Years' War, states, French resources were liberated for aggressive ventures elsewhere. The French fleet that had been massing in Marseille to take Philip to the Holy Land was transferred to the Channel. During the summer of 1336, French ships raided the English coasts. Wild rumors raced across the kingdom that Philip was planning an invasion. In reality, the king of France was massing forces to attack Aquitaine. According to Sumtian, Edward III and the other English leaders concluded that war with France was now inevitable. Although an English embassy hurried to Paris to try to negotiate a diplomatic solution to the escalating crisis, the kingdom began mobilizing on land and sea. Philip launched his final provocation in the winter of 1336. His brother-in-law, Robert of Artois, was then in England under the protection of Edward III. Once one of his key allies and closest advisors, Robert had caused the French king great harm through his endless machinations, including forgery and murder, to claim the wealthy and strategically located county of Artois. At the English court, he had provided Edward III with vital intelligence about French political and military affairs. He also continually reminded the English king of his claim to the French throne. On December the 26th, 1336, Philip VI dispatched a letter to Edward III ordering him to surrender Robert of Artois, whom he dubbed the mortal enemy of the French crown. The letter, however, was not delivered to Edward in England, but to Sir Oliver Ingham, the Seneschal of Aquitaine, the chief English official and military commander in the duchy. Philip was demanding Edward's obedience as his vassal. Yet the French king's authority as overlord did not extend to England. With his letter, Philip was attempting to kill two birds with one stone. He sought to put an end to the irritant that was Robert of Artois, and he was creating a pretext to confiscate Aquitaine. Edward refused to give in to Philip's demand. Instead, in March 1337, he summoned Parliament in order to accelerate preparations for war. In April, Philip issued the Arrière-Bon, a general call to arms to all his subjects, noble and commoner. Then, on May 24th, Philip announced that Aquitaine was confiscated to the French crown. As there was never a formal declaration of war, this event traditionally marks the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. The fighting escalated gradually. In the first two years of the war, the main theater was Aquitaine. There, the French forces began their attacks within six weeks of Philip VI's declaration of confiscation. The French took English stronghold after English stronghold, gradually closing in on Bordeaux, the capital of the duchy. 
Edward III appeared to have originally intended to campaign in Aquitaine with the English royal army, but at some point he decided to entrust Aquitaine's defense to the capable Seneschal Ingham and the local nobility. The King of England instead set his sights on Flanders, a region in northern France close to Paris, and where the English had numerous potential allies among the Flemish princes as well as disgruntled vassals of Philip VI. Edward's preparations, particularly raising money and finding allies, took considerable time. He only crossed the channel to Flanders in July 1338. Finally, Edward was ready in September 1339. He invaded France with an army of English troops and Flemish allies. Philip VI gathered his host to meet him. Before he marched out, the King of France went to the Abbey of Saint-Denis and retrieved the royal war banner the Oriflamme. By October 1339, the two kings appeared headed for the first great trial of arms of the Hundred Years' War. The decision by Philip VI to force war on Edward III was hardly rash. Rather, the French king must have calculated that he enjoyed a position of overwhelming strength. The kingdom he ruled was the largest, wealthiest, and most populous in Christendom. According to the great French medievalist Ferdinand Lot, there were just over 16 million French subjects in 1300. These assets translated to awesome military strength. The Royal Army of France was the largest of all feudal hosts. Moreover, French men-at-arms were widely considered the best in the world. As recently as 1328, Philip VI had led his host to victory over the tough militias of the Flemish towns at the Battle of Kassel. By comparison, King Edward III's realm and its military might seemed puny. Including England and his beleaguered lands in France, Edward ruled over perhaps 7 million people. Moreover, he would have to divide his outnumbered forces among three different theatres, Scotland, Aquitaine, and Flanders. And not least, Following numerous defeats at the hands of the Scots, the reputation of English arms and fighting men at the beginning of the 14th century was low. According to an adage widespread in Europe, two Englishmen were no match for a single decrepit Scot. Yet, from the very beginning of the Hundred Years' War, events would reveal that France was weaker and England more formidable than first appeared. The critical French weakness that would decisively determine the course and character of the war was internal division. Philip VI's immense realm was far from a united kingdom. The French king directly ruled only the royal demesne, which comprised the Ile de France and territories that had become attached to it over the course of the 13th century, such as Anjou and Maine. The remainder of France was fragmented into a myriad of political units duchies, counties, baronies, lordships, and autonomous towns. The most important of these units were appanage and principalities. An appanage was a territory granted by the king to a younger son of the royal family to rule as his own. The greatest appanage of them all was Burgundy. Beginning in the second half of the 14th century, the Dukes of Burgundy would become the most powerful subjects of the kings of France and soon after their most dangerous rivals, playing a starring role in the events leading up to Agincourt and in the last phase of the Hundred Years' War. In addition to the appanage, 
there were semi-independent principalities as old as France itself, and ruled by dynasties that only reluctantly acknowledged the ultimate sovereignty of the French crown. Among these were the Duchy of Brittany, the Celtic realm in the west of France, and the Kingdom of Navarre in the Pyrenees Mountains in the far south. While all these political units, from the largest appanage to the smallest county, owed allegiance and obedience to the French king, they were also essentially self-governing. More importantly, they raised and controlled their own military forces. Thus, great swathes of France had the wherewithal to defy the crown if they decided that royal power threatened their autonomy and their interests. But the key reason why England was able to match and even dominate France for much of the Hundred Years' War was the splendid fighting qualities of the English armies. For between the defeat at Bannockburn in 1314 and King Edward III's first campaign in France in 1339, the English war machine was transformed into the most formidable and potent in all Christendom. So far-reaching was this transformation that the historian Michael Prestwich claims it amounted to nothing less than a military revolution.